Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Ryan Green with me. Dr. Green is an osteopathic physician specializing in human performance, sports medicine, nutrition, and the most cutting-edge recovery methods available. Dr. Green serves as principal medical advisor at Monarch Athletic Club in West Hollywood, the first private sustainable health and wellness facility delivering traditional training services combined with physician-directed, evidence-based, integrative medical intervention. Dr. Green earned his master's of science in exercise physiology, immunology, and human nutrition at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He completed postgraduate medical training at Dartmouth and the Mayo Clinic. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's a great honor to be here. Of course. Thankful to have you on. So, you know, for people that don't know you as well, can you kind of take us back to the beginning, you know, where you grew up? your family situation, uh, what type of kid you were, things like that. Uh, Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a suburb of Chicago, Wheaton, Illinois, 20 miles straight west of the city. So, um, you know, all things considered, my parents had good jobs. It was a great place to grow up, good schools. Uh, If you want to get super granular, like my neighborhood probably had 30 houses and 25 of them had kids my age. So like it couldn't have been a better situation. Um, yeah. So, uh, I think sometimes when I, I listen to podcasts about people that are doing cool stuff, you know, that tends to be born out of adversity. And I was just like, like, I can't really complain. Like my parents wanted to make sure I, uh, instilled a sense of responsibility. Nothing was given to me. I had to work for everything, but, you know, they also had means and, and worked hard themselves so that they could provide the resources my sister and I, who's uh, about a year and a half younger than me, needed. So <clears throat> I just remember growing up, um, I learned early the value of hard work because that was one of the principles that was drilled in from my earliest memory. So like it wasn't cartoons on Saturday morning. I was getting up and either playing sports or doing chores or mowing the lawn. Or, you know, when I was 13, my dad said, Hey, you know, it's time to, to drop one of the sports you're playing. You need to get a job, earn the value of a dollar. So I started caddying at a local golf course. And, you know, again, like it's uh, little things like that, being able to look back and reflect uh, our experiences that I know I will try to pass forward to to my kids if I if I'm able to have them Uh, but I'm just grateful that my parents although they could have made my life as easy as they possibly wanted to um, definitely made sure that I understood what it would take to be successful as I I got older so that's kind of my childhood Um, in terms of what led me to medicine you know truthfully I had a neighbor who was a cardiologist when I was I remember vividly when I was in probably like third grade, he was driving myself and his son to school. And he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't really know. Like I loved uh, dolphins. So I said, maybe marine biologist. I have no idea. Uh, or maybe a doctor. He goes, ah, if you if you didn't know you wanted to be a doctor by your first memory, it's not the space for you. So I was like, <laughs> all right, it's not for me. It's all good. Yeah. Um, but as I went through school, high school and, and whatnot, I definitely had a an acumen for the sciences. Um, and so I was eventually accepted to university of Illinois and I got into their engineering program. And the only reason I applied for engineering was purely because it was a top five program in the country at the time. And my parents said, Hey, like, it's really good. They went there. So that's kind of what I knew in terms of college was the big 10 campus feel. 
Um, and my parents were like, even if you wanted to think about medicine, like getting an engineering degree, like will set you up for success no matter what you do. So I was like, great. I don't really have a passion for it, but it is what it is. I got in. Um, so I'll try that. And throughout college, um, that's kind of where I cultivated my passion for medicine. Part of it was the science and my passion for that. And I'll actually take a step back. Um, the, the true like fire uh, grew from like the initial spark, uh, so to speak, came from when I was working at the golf course. I had a, a young kid who was out playing on the course, unfortunately got hit in the head by a golf club. Mm-hmm. I was the first person to respond. And, you know, some people get uh, shocked or they pass out at the sight of blood. Like all I can explain is my mind went to what do you do? How do you fix this? What are, what's the follow-up look like? Yeah. <clears throat> it was at that point, I was like, all right, maybe I need to investigate this more. Um, so, you know, again, then when I went to college, everyone's pre-med and they all have biology degrees and, you know, 1% of kids get into med school and then you're left with a biology degree, degree what do you do with it? Yeah. So that's why I kind of went the engineering route initially. But after two years, and to be completely honest, a ton of physics, I was like, this sucks. I don't want to <laughs> do this anymore. Like, yeah. like all my buddies that are going to dental school uh, are taking kinesiology, exercise physiology. They're doing all this cool stuff with sports. Um, but I'd never heard of the field of kinesiology. And so I didn't even think about it when I was applying. Nonetheless, I knew that continuing on the engineering pathway would have been difficult because I just wasn't passionate about it. So mm. uh, it was actually tough because I never wanted to be that guy that like switched majors. Yeah. Part of my personality for better or for worse is if I find something, I stick with it. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, I've also appreciated like, you know, it's good to change and what you're passionate about or relationships or whatever evolve over time. And you don't always need to keep the people or the occupation or whatever with you forever. It's, it's good to grow. Like we want to encourage that growth. So anyway, when I was a junior, I switched into kinesiology and, you know, it was a synchronicity that uh, I started taking classes with uh, a professor who would become my fellowship or excuse me, master's advisor uh, in exercise physiology, immunology, and human nutrition. So when I was applying for medical schools, instead of just taking a, a job you know, as a scribe or something like that, I was offered a position as a master's student, get an extra degree, have my tuition paid for. Uh, it was great because it, in, in all honesty, I was too immature at that point to really have handled the rigors of medical school. So I was able to get a little bit extra seasoning and a little bit more of a professional environment, but also still be in the college town so I could kind of transition out of that phase of life. And then eventually uh, I was accepted to uh, a DO program, an osteopathic program in Denver, Colorado, which um, uh, at the time was actually an interesting decision. I knew that it was a good fit and a good place for me based on the other uh, medical schools I'd been accepted to, but it was a, it was a newer school. It was only like three years old. Um, and in the medical space, everything's steeped in tradition. It's all about where did you go? Letters, college degrees. And so going to a new osteopathic medical school uh, was a b- little bit of a risk. Fortunately, one of my best friends from growing up and playing soccer um, was there. He was already a student. He goes, this place is the best, like great professors, a lot of funding. They're not cutting any corners. And truthfully, like all they want you to do is be able to get a residency wherever you want and whatever you want there. That's their number one goal. Yeah. 
And I went out and visited, had an interview, and I was like, you know what? <clears throat> I'm good with the, sh- the Midwest weather as you're experiencing out in Boston. Like it's cold. <laughs> I was just like, I, yeah. I've, I've, I'm good on this. Yeah. I went out to Denver for an interview in February. It was 65 and sunny. There was mountains. So uh, the universe shone down upon me, and I was like, yep, this is where I need to go. And ultimately, that's really what changed the course of my life. Because at that point, like I was kind of doing what I'd always done, drinking. I was still exercising the stuff that I really implement in my, my practice now, but it was the environment where I was growing up. It's not that it's, it's bad. It just wasn't for me. Like the, the emphasis was more, you know, dinners, drinks, bars, like all that kind of stuff in, in, uh, in small doses, it's fine. But for me, I think had I have, would I have stayed in the Midwest? I, there's no way I'd be doing what I'm, I would be doing now. And, and ultimately, it was it was the best decision to go out to Colorado, because if you've ever been, people that live in Colorado don't go there just because, you know, they want to work in Denver or something like that. They go there because there's a thousand things that you can do that are active and that are outdoors. So everyone just tends to be a little bit healthier. Uh, they were eating in different ways that I I'd never seen before. And ultimately, that was really the second iteration of who I am today started in Denver with some of my mentors out there uh, in terms of the lifestyle, the diet, the movement, the understanding of kind of like the preventive aspect of health. Yeah. That being said, my goal, you know, once I started med school was to be an orthopedic surgeon, do sports medicine, take care of professional sports teams. I'm a huge Tom Brady guy, like massive. Um, I think he actually just retired. Today. He just he did. Retire. Yeah. I'm yeah. Getting texts right now. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's a tough day. It's a hard day to do this. Um, I'm in, I'm in mourning now, but, uh, I, you know, working for the Patriots was like the goal. And, and, uh, one of my mentors in medical school was the team physician for the Denver Broncos and the Colorado Rockies. And we developed a super strong relationship. I'm eternally grateful for everything that he did for me, but the best thing he did was he trained as a resident in orthopedics at Dartmouth out in the East coast in the Mm -hmm. Ivy league. And he facilitated my ability to even just get a rotation out there so they could meet me and consider me. And then, you know, ultimately I ended up with an interview and like, <clears throat> it's just one of those things that I'm super grateful for as well, because going from a DO school to an Ivy league institution is almost unheard of unless mm-hmm. like your father or, or, or mother is the program director. So that was a, a great opportunity and ultimately, the best thing that came about it was I realized my passion for orthopedic surgery was not actually where I needed to spend my time. And that really was like the final um, component that led me to what I'm doing now, which is more preventive medicine, sports medicine, you know, lifestyle modification. Uh, and it truly was, it was the most wonderful experience, incredible people, incredible hospital, incredible residents. I have nothing bad to say. What I realized was, I don't want to spend my time in a hospital. I don't want to be working a hundred hours a week, not because I couldn't, but the people that I was working with, I wasn't really able to, to help. Like, yes, we could do surgeries and yes, we could, you know, fix acute issues, but most of the people I was seeing and most of the people in the U S what was really the underlying cause was this, this disease chronicity, like lifestyle associated illnesses that was causing breakdown of their, their body or physiology. But by the time you get to a hospital, you've missed so many opportunities to change course 
that it was basically high stress situation with people that were complicated. Me as the physician, my attendings, fellow residents, our quality of life was tough, like your long hours, poor food, poor diet, no exercise. So everything that I knew and kind of learned in Denver, I was like, this doesn't really fit uh, what I, I believe a physician should be practicing. And then also sharing with patients, like, why would you listen to me if I was overweight, had diabetes as a physician, <laughs> and you're coming into me as like, you know, I, I just remember specifically, there was an oncologist that I worked with that was easily 350 pounds, like he's obese, mm. huge, huge risk for potential illnesses, cancer. It's like, so how can you be, you know, a practitioner telling someone what to do if you couldn't do it yourself? So that was the final component, like I said, that really shifted me to where I'm at now, which is um, uh, the creation of Monarch Athletic Club. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to that eventually. But <clears throat> so after residency, I was like, shoot, I don't know what I want to do now because everything that I hoped and dreamed team physician, orthopedist, et cetera. Like, what do I do? Because I've, I don't want to do it anymore. And so I took a year, I went to the Mayo Clinic. I did a, a fellowship there in, in sports medicine and uh, hand surgery, as well as clinical research. So we were doing projects, working with patients, um, churned out a, a ton of, of literature. And I thought maybe I'll stay on the academic side of medicine and, you know, contribute to the, the academic medical literature. That's, that's where I'm going to make my impact. And I realized that that definitely wasn't for me uh, for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, but also that like, oddly enough, the medical literature is highly influenced by industry. So like, if mm -hmm. they're not going to publish papers, if someone or some entity can't potentially profit from a medication or a device. Yep. So that didn't sit super well with me. But it was at that point that <clears throat> when I was kind of in a, in a moment of despair, like truly, I was like, sh sh like, what do I do now? Like, Surgery wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Research, helpful, but not where I want to spend all my time. So what do I do? And I don't know how or when, but this idea came to me for kind of a comprehensive one-stop shop. Um, and part of it was I went to Mall of America one weekend and I was like, this place is ridiculous. Like there's mm -hmm. hotels, there's water parks. People literally come here for vacation to a mall yeah. because they can just walk around and they don't have to do anything. And that was, you know, some of the, uh, the inspiration for what is this Monarch Athletic Club <clears throat> as it exists today, which is a one-stop shop for health and wellness. So I was contacted by a colleague, one of my best friends who lives um, out here in, in Los Angeles, who was a professional athlete at the time, and was like, hey, I'm kind of investing in this subscription-based personal training model. One of the guys that's training me is going to be working there. He has some questions for you. And over the course of a couple of discussions, I you know, kind of shared with him, the future of medicine is gonna be this comprehensive approach, a preventative approach, data-driven, evidence-based, not, not so that we can eliminate insurance companies or eliminate disease altogether, but definitely start chipping away at the amount we're spending and the, the uh, impact that it's having subjectively in people's lives from not being able to actually set up a solid foundation of health. And so, I came out here and, you know, my, my partners uh, that were initially going to create this kind of a uh, personal training idea, handed me the reins, trusted uh, my vision and, you know, helped support from the financial side and things like that. And now two, well, that was actually five years ago, but we've been open now for two years and are incredibly successful and uh, growing. And I'm grateful even 
even though we've been open for 80% of our uh, existence has been in a pandemic, like it couldn't have been better, all things considered for the idea of a comprehensive medically driven facility to kind of guide people to health and keep them healthy. Um, so I'm, I'm super grateful. And uh, now it's just, what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? How do we take this message, which is, you know, foundational elements of health will ultimately allow anyone to achieve what they want to do for as long as they want to do it. So what are those next steps? Bricks and more, uh, brick and mortar locations. We have a virtual platform that's in development. Uh, so there's a lot of different things. And uh, so I recognize that was a long winded answer, but you no, wanted soup no. to nuts. So I yeah. gave you from, from birth to current. That's what yeah, we're Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, gives us a lot of context. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, especially, you know, where you are in Hollywood and um, you know, you yourself being a successful individual and you talked about possibly having kids and um, you know, maybe growing up in uh, you know, a middle-class background, where where did your drive come from in high school um, to be able to get into uh, a place like UIUC? <clears throat> so when I was sitting, I'll give you an, uh, my memory is pretty good for better or for worse. So I remember the exact moment. It was the night before my freshman year of high school, eating dinner with my family. My dad said, you know, your mother and I have worked hard. We've put money away. Um, if you earn it, you can go to any college that you want. You won't have to pay any loans. You won't have to take out any loans. So if that's Harvard, you know, we've done the work to be able to afford that. If it's somewhere else that's less expensive, you know, we can obviously afford that. So he basically gave me a challenge. He says, it's up to you, whatever you want to achieve. Like if you want it and you work hard for it, we'll make sure that, you know, from the, the funding side, it can happen. So for me, that was a, a huge challenge, which is like, okay, like uh, I will, I'm a competitive person. Like I want to do the best. I want to make my parents proud. I want to make myself proud. So <clears throat> having that kind of ringing in the back of my head was the initial component. The other part was uh, both my parents went to Illinois. Uh, my grandparents, two of them grew up like right around there. So all I really knew growing up was University of Illinois. And uh, I looked at a bunch of other schools. I was a competitive soccer athlete. I wasn't probably going to be a star at the D1 level, but had some, uh, some looks D1, D2, D3. And I went to a bunch of different colleges and uh, truthfully from uh, like a feel perspective of what, what did I think college felt like? Uh, Illinois had that, uh, component. And then I also knew I wanted to be in a, a bigger environment because, uh, my high school was pretty big and everyone still knew everyone. And I was like, man, if I go to a college of five to 8,000 people, it's only, uh, it's not that much bigger than my high school. So if I do something stupid, people are probably going to know me and hold it against me. So perhaps <laughs> I become something, yeah. uh, a little less recognizable. The other part, uh, I didn't tell you this because it just came to me right now and I, I don't know how I forgot it. Uh, I love music. I love singing. I love everything that has to do with music and, uh, it didn't come from my parents. So I don't know where the talent came from, but, but singing was something that I discovered in middle school and high school. I was very good at, I was in a professional choir at 16 years old. And then my mother took me to see this acapella group at the University of Illinois called The Other Guys. It was eight guys. It was music. It was comedy. 
uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw them. And when I was like, damn, they have that at University of Illinois. I'm going to be in that. I know I'm good enough. Hopefully, if I go there, I can get in that group because they're making thousands of people laugh. They're doing shows all over the world. And so that was the other big thing is when I was choosing schools, Northwestern, uh, Notre Dame, Illinois, I was like, not only does Illinois feel like home, but they also have that that music component. And uh, so that was another big deciding factor. So to kind of circle back, my parents challenged me. I'm competitive. I wanted to work hard. I wanted to get into a good school. And there was also that that uh, uh, intangible of the the music scene that oddly was pretty good at Illinois at the time. So, yeah, you know, you talked about you know you were at UIUC yeah. two years in engineering. Uh, at some point, you get to, you know you see some friends taking you know um, maybe kinesiology kinesiology. And, um, you so make it's, that, uh, basically exercise science. Yeah. Exercise science. And you, and you make that decision to switch, mm -hmm. which is tough, right? Cause mm -hmm. you've had a sunk cost of two years. There mm -hmm. might be judgment from, you know, your friends on like going along the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Um, did, did you struggle with that decision? I did. I did. So, <clears throat> um, it was more my parents than anything else because they always want the best for their kids. Hopefully. I think most parents do. And I just, I knew that my parents were, they wanted to know what would happen if medical medical school didn't work out, right? So what am I going to do with an exercise science degree? Am I going to be a physical education teacher? Like what are the, what are the pathways that lead from that degree uh, certification? And to be honest, I didn't know and I didn't really care. Uh, but ultimately I just said, here's the deal. Like my GPA is good for engineering but it's not good for medical school, right? I had like a three, six at the time. Um, so I need to do something different and I'm not passionate about engineering. Like it's not enjoyable. And they eventually, you know, they've trusted me every step of my journey, even to this day. Like they don't know exactly how Monarch works or like where it's going to go or what that looks like, but they just know I'm passionate about it. So they've supported me. And they did the same then. Eventually I was like, here's the deal. My buddies that are going to dental school, they're doing this worst case scenario. I get a master's degree and, you know, go into biotech or, you know, uh, orthopedic sales, something like that. I had no intention of doing it, but whatever I, I would, I would have said whatever I had to, to like allow them to, for me to shift. And eventually they did. So, yeah, I would think it was my parents more than anything that I was, I was just kind of, I didn't want to disappoint them and also want them, didn't want them to think I was quitting. But as I've learned and I would share with anyone is like, if you're not passionate about something, do not continue doing it unless there is no other way. Like if you have the ability to pivot, pivot, like it may be scary. You may not know exactly what, you know, the next few months, years look like, but I can tell you unequivocally, if you continue doing something day after day, you're not passionate about that is an energetic drain. That is like the value lost there is incalculable. So uh, I, I didn't appreciate that at the time. I just knew something didn't feel quite right. And ultimately I needed to change. Yeah. Uh, you talked about getting a master's in exercise physiology. I'm curious, you know, when did you make that decision junior senior year? And, you know, were you considering other things and, you know, if you have any advice for someone on trying to figure that out, maybe they're majoring in the sciences in their undergrad and aren't yeah. quite sure for next steps. 
Yeah. So more education is never a bad thing. Um, especially these days, you know, a bachelor's degree is kind of the status quo. So how do you separate yourself? We could have a whole nother podcast on like, what is the actual value of the degree in terms of knowledge and differentiation between, you know, two uh, candidates. But at the time, um, I didn't, I didn't know when med school would happen. So I knew that I had to do something. And uh, many medical students will do undergraduate research just to fortify their resume a little bit. And my professor at the time was like, hey, we've started this project at, in the Big Ten, or at least in, in the state of Illinois. I'm fairly certain that graduate students have to have their tuition covered plus a stipend. That's basically part of like the funding agreement for professors. I don't know if it's the same everywhere else, but it definitely was when I was there. So basically, you know, came to me, it was like, you know, we can get you a master's degree. You can help finish out some of these projects. You'll be a TA, you'll get paid. You know, you won't have any loans. And at the time I was like, it actually sounds pretty good. I can take my time on getting into medical school and things like that. So that was how it went for me. For other people that are in the sciences and thinking about potentially medicine or something like that, what I'll tell you is most medical schools, the average age of students matriculated now is like 26 and older, right? So they're not coming straight out of undergrad and going to medicine. And here's why. Burnout is at an epidemic level amongst physicians, dentists, physical therapists, whatever. And the reason is, is because most of the kids that make it to that level have worked super hard, middle school, high school, college, and then you're asked to work 10 times harder in medical school or dental school. And then you have to go and hustle in the field. And a lot of people burn out. There's a lot of dropout in in, uh, medical school and dental school. So what these institutions are doing is they're basically saying like, hey, prove to me that you want to be here. And the way they kind of do it is like they have people actually go into other industry or other careers or research or something, and then take them once they're like, yep, like I tried this wasn't for me. My passion's still medicine. So I'm going to loop back around and stick with it because they end up having a higher retention rate, uh, which is important for medical schools and residencies alike. So um, for the younger folks coming up, I'd say like, don't feel bad if you need to take a couple years, try something different. Like, work in the sciences, work in a medical space, like truly find out if it's actually good for you, whether that's getting extra degrees, whatever, because, you know, once you make the commitment to medical school, not only is it time, it's effort, it's energy, and it's a massive financial cost. It shouldn't be because they're, you know, essential workers, not even pandemic related, like, yeah, you know, we can't have a hospital system if we don't have positions. <laughs> so how is it like the most expensive thing that someone has to sign up for? Nonetheless, like once you're in and the loans are out and you sign the dotted line, like they're yours. So uh, you have to be really certain that this field is what you want to pursue. And ultimately, even if you start at 22 versus 26, 27, whatever, you're looking hopefully 40 to 50 years of your life in a high stress high impact yet highly, you know, um, satisfying field. So it's worth it, in my opinion, to take the time and just make sure this is really what you want to do. Um, because a lot of people just, you know, assume it is, and they just kind of go straight through. 
and never actually get any life experience or work experience. And then when they get into the field, they're like, oh, shoot, this isn't really where I want to be. So, yeah, um, yeah I take the time, you know, get an extra degree, take another job. Like, who knows where you'll go? Yeah. And so, you know, after the master's, you, you go to osteopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk to me about that determination process. Sure. I mean, obviously, you know, um, you, you can go to medical school, you can go to dental school. How'd you choose, um, you know, osteopathic yeah. medicine? Sure. <clears throat> Uh, I had a guest lecturer when I was in my master's program. I had no idea what osteopathic medicine was. I just assumed all physicians were MDs. And he talked about what being a DO was. He was a surgeon, um, shared how, you know, he can still work with his hands and do adjustments and soft tissue work. It's all legal. He can bill for it all. So I was like, this guy sounds like he's kind of like a jack of all trades and really good at all of them. And so I started to inquire more about the field. And then when I was applying for medical school, I realized that the licensure and the scope of specialties that you can go into, it's, a, it's essentially the same. Like they, the fields weren't unified at that point when I was applying, but they are now. It's like a unified match. It's a unified accreditation system. I had to take two different sets of boards, which are basically the same exam, just two days in a row. And also twice the expense, but that's a different story. And uh, so when I was making my decision, I was like, okay, I could go get the MD and that's, you know, steeped in tradition and, and, and whatnot. And I'm sure I'd get a great education, but there was something about being able to not only do everything that they can do, but also have the ability to do manipulation. So stuff that chiropractors do, do soft tissue work, like, you know, physical therapists and, and some of their tools and techniques. So it just seemed like a more well-rounded education and something that would allow me to understand anatomy a little bit better. So that ultimately drove me to the field of osteopathic medicine. And then when I was choosing between med schools, I had an MD program and a DO program. And I'm sure my education quality would have been relatively the same in either place. Truthfully, what made the determination as I went and interviewed at, at this MD program in January in the Midwest and it was cold and sleety sleet. Yeah. And, uh, then I went a month later and interviewed in Denver, Colorado, and it was 65 and sunny. And I was like, sounds like the DOA is the way I'm going to yeah. go. So, uh, I wish I had a more scientific response, yeah. but ultimately on the back end, um, we're finding more and more people these days are, uh, choosing, kind of uh, people in the osteopathic profession because the preventive medicine, kind of the comprehensive way that, that we approach our field uh, includes some of those components that I integrate in my practice today. Um, nothing like I have plenty of MD colleagues are amazing. They're super talented. Um, it's just, we have a little bit extra education and, and certain things that comes in handy from time to time. And I mean, right now I'm working with physical therapists, nutrition, you know, myself. So uh, it's, it's actually been a benefit being able to speak their language and understand their techniques with a little bit more uh, understanding than, you know, perhaps some of my MD colleagues would. I'm not a physical therapist by any means, but at least I have a little bit of understanding. So it's been helpful with what we're doing here at Monarch for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, do you have any advice on the admissions process? I know you know, there's grades, there's research, there's sure. MCAT. Um, any any piece of advice that you would give to someone uh, going through that process? Yeah, so um, never give up, number one. If you're passionate about it, 
a door will open. I, I don't know how, when, how long, like I can't give any guidance around that, but just never give up. If you're truly passionate about it, never give up. The second part is the way the process works. It's not the best, but it is what it is. You're getting thousands upon thousands of applicants. They have to figure out who's worth an interview, who's not. And that's at med school residency or otherwise. So scores are important because it gets you in the door. But more and more schools these days, truly what they care about is, are you a good person? Are you going to fit the fabric of the institution? And do you have the capacity and compassion to be a good physician, a good dentist, whatever? Because you could be the smartest person in the world. And I've had many individuals I've worked with uh, a ton smarter than I am but they could not communicate with a, another person. And we are finding that that bedside manner, the ability to articulate, the ability to work as a, as a part of a team is very, very important. So get the grades because it gets you in the door, but ultimately scores and grades are not a differentiating factor in terms of matriculation into medical school. This most significant part is like, who are you as a human being? Take time to figure out like, you know, are you actually, compassionate about the field what makes you unique what what's going to make you a better physician is it a personal story you can connect with you know whatever that is I have no idea but really the interview is make or break at any level of the medical process because for the amount of time and the intensity that you're subjected to in the in the clinical or the didactic education years and then in the clinical setting you're basically at you know, like in the trenches at war with your med student classmates and then your residents. And if you're not a great person and they don't like working with you, like you're not gonna get in. So uh, it's, it's not all grades and numbers. Like don't stress yourself out on that. You do have to hit a certain threshold, like I'm not gonna lie, but really the, uh, the, uh, the importance is um, who you are as a person. Yeah. During during that time period, you know, you're in this cohort with of students, um, you know, some students are saying they're studying X number of hours, you know, I mean, there's, I'm sure there were times where you felt self conscious about, you know, I guess, the competitive nature of, you know, of, of the schooling and, and things like that. Uh, you know, sometimes you're learning intubation and maybe the first mm -hmm. time you don't do it well or whatever yeah you know do, do you have uh you know pieces of advice you know for people that are in it right now in terms of you know handling the mental uh aspect of you know the new learning the competitive nature of grades that you know yeah. all of that yeah i just say stay in your lane like don't compare yourself to anyone else you don't know what they're going through it doesn't matter at the end of the day, like you're on this journey for you and that's unique and it's perfect because it's, you know, it's designed whatever you believe uniquely for you. So um, don't compare yourself to others. I know as a competitive individual, especially in that like pressure cooker of an environment, it's, it's hard not to. Um, and I think competition's good. That being said, like if that's your driving force is just to beat other people out, like the point of you doing anything in your professional career is like to be a good professional at whatever you're doing. So don't lose sight of that. Um, 
And then the other part is just try everything. Everyone fails. It's important. It's an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, ultimately, I think the way I've learned the most is being that guy in the room. Like if someone, someone like an attending surgeon was like, Hey, someone try this procedure. Like, I'm not afraid to go up and be like, yeah, I'll do it first because I know one, I probably won't do it right, but at least I'll get some education so I can do it correctly the next time versus sitting in the back, not participating, thinking that I'm learning, but really like most people learn by doing and learn by not doing right. And then being able to measure the gap between failure and success and hopefully closing that with each successive attempt. So uh, don't be afraid to be embarrassed. Everyone has screwed up at some point. Like I've, I, I couldn't even count how many times I did something incorrectly or stupid. Uh, what's important is that you learn. So the next time you don't do it, or at least don't do it as frequently. So that's going to be important. So don't be afraid of failing. Don't be afraid of looking like an idiot. Don't be afraid of asking a question in class that may be dumb because who cares what other people think about you? They have no impact on your future or your career. Like if they're spending time and energy worrying about you, that's their problem. That's, that's unfortunate, right? So just be confident and be confident in failure and in success. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you would say to a current student in terms of making the most of their four years? Mm. Um, try everything. Uh, you know, it depends on like what level, if you're thinking about medical school, like I knew some people that um, kind of got into they got into medical school and then they started to coast. They're like, as long as I graduate, like I'll still be a physician. Um, and that always rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, man, y'all worked super hard to get to this point. Like, why are you taking your foot off the gas now? <clears throat> so yeah, like <clears throat> for kids that are in the process, whether it's undergrad or, or medical school, whatever that is, like try everything. Um, like I said before, be comfortable with failure because ultimately that's the best place to learn and grow. But also like you have an incredible opportunity to become an incredible physician as long as you work hard enough. So like don't cut corners, do things the right way, continue to work hard. The final part is take care of yourself because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not gonna do anyone any benefit. You know, Not only you, your loved ones, your colleagues, classmates, whatever. Um, so don't sacrifice your health for any goal, because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And I think that's one of the things that ultimately led me to where I am today is this kind of that dissonance of like, I could I work 100 hours a week? Sure. Should I? Probably not in this setting, because I'm not able to pay attention to the aspects of health that I know are important. Um, and that, you know, I still work 80 plus hours per week, but at least I work in a facility that has a fitness center, so I can still work out and like do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that worked out for me, but yeah, I think, you know, stay committed, uh, try everything. Um, don't take your foot off the gas and also, you know, don't forget you are your most valuable asset. So like take time for yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the Dartmouth residency and then the Mayo Clinic fellowship, uh, I know you talked about, you know, maybe mentally going into it, thinking you were going to try to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, with experience, you, you found that maybe that wasn't your passion and 
maybe uh, research wasn't your passion as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of those, you know, several years, is, is there any other life lessons that you took from, uh, you know, Dartmouth or Mayo that you want to pass on? Um, <clears throat> so it wasn't technically from Dartmouth, but it was my mentor who went to Dartmouth. So I'm going to use that latitude there if I'm able, if you'll allow it. (laughs) Um, uh, He was an incredible orthopedic surgeon. And one of the the phrases or the lessons that have stuck with me is um, he said, you know, as the surgeon in the room, and this applies to everyone, but we just happen to be in the operating room. He goes, you're the leader and your team takes their cues based on how you interact and how you respond to any situation. So just keep in mind, like everyone is looking to you as a leader and everyone is going to base their behavior and how they function throughout that day surrounding how you interact with everyone. So if you come in and you're in a, sh- can I swear? Sorry. If you're in a yeah, bad yeah, mood, yeah. oh yeah, sorry. If you're in a shitty mood, um, you know, everyone else is going to be on guard and, you know, that impacts the room. If you're in a great mood, everyone else feels better. They do well. Um, so every step of the way, every experience I've been in, whether it's in residency and surgery or, you know, leading what we're doing here at Monarch, like I'm very cognizant of the understanding, like no matter how I feel, how I respond when I'm interacting with someone, friend, colleague, uh, employee, my behavior will impact and dictate to some degree how they experience the rest of the day, the week and things like that. So I don't, it's not lost on me that anyone in a leadership position, like you have a responsibility, not only to do your job, but also set a good example so that everyone around you can understand like, what's the culture, um, you know, and, and how do we function? Is it a fear-based space? Is it a supportive based space? Um, so that, that's something that I probably was the most impactful thing that I, I took away from, you know, my earlier years, which is like, you're the captain of the ship, the crew goes as you go. And if you're going in a bad way, so will the ship and so will the crew. Yeah. I saw that you did a fellowship at the University of Arizona. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about what made you sure. do that integrative medicine <clears throat> and then what you learned from that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in between Mayo Clinic and Monarch, uh, I had a physician colleague who was interested in some of the similar preventive medicine stuff that I, uh, you know, I'm was and am doing. And he shared with me, he's like, I'm doing this fellowship program. It's a two-year program, but it's definitely worth it. University of Arizona. And the, the fellowship advisor was a physician named Dr. Andrew Weil, who is world renowned in nutritional medicine, preventive medicine. He created a restaurant concept amongst other things, um, called true food kitchen, which is an amazing place to eat. If you've never been, go it's awesome and so i had known him from just some of the stuff that i was reading outside of school and work and otherwise and i looked into the program and i was like wow like it's a growing field of medicine it's definitely newer compared to everything else but it seems like this again is where medicine's going which is integration of east meets west nutrition meets you know uh traditional evidence-based medicine and for me i was like i think a healthy life program for anyone a healthy prescription uh, plan should include not only the medical aspect, but movement, but, you know, um, you know, perhaps meditation or acupuncture or whatever. 
And so I, I just felt called to get a better understanding of those other types of medicine, other techniques, other ways of thinking about a problem and ended up <clears throat> having some time as Monarch was being developed. So I kind of did like two things at once, develop Monarch and then also do this fellowship. And it was amazing. It was awesome. It was an incredible two years. I learned a ton. Uh, and ultimately I got to learn from someone that I looked up to and is a, you know, a powerhouse in the preventive aspect of medicine. And it's cool because now there's probably 20 plus centers of integrative medicine at major universities and academic centers, Duke, Cleveland Clinic, like all these places. So uh, I'm just fortunate. I kind of got in on the, on the early end and now we're seeing a greater, um, uh, progression in, in the volume of people that want to learn what I had learned. So it's become, it's, it's been very helpful in my practice to have a more well-rounded understanding, thus approach to someone and their, and their issues. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you finish, you know, uh, at Arizona and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm curious about your thought process and in, in terms of how Monarch came about, right. Um, this isn't, necessarily the typical path, right, to become an entrepreneur right sure. after, um, you know, and again, you know, maybe there's friends and family or like, mm -hmm. hey, you know, Ryan, not sure, you know, that's the best idea. Sure. Um, talk about, you know, yeah. how you met Paul, uh, Marielle, like, how, how did this all come about? Yeah. Um, so before I get there, yes, people were like, just stay working at a hospital, it's safe, it's stable. Uh, and I was just like, it's like this, I'm like, it's not for me. Like, it's just really not, but I had no idea what else I was going to do next. Um, so as I kind of mentioned previously, uh, my buddy, Mike, who was a former professional boxer had a trainer named Gabe Rangel. He's amazing. Former Marine special forces guy, brilliant trainer, super smart. Uh, he was working with my now partners at the time. And he brought me out to LA and because we were talking about the idea, which is now Monarch and kind of how we would integrate it. So I pitched it to my now partners and Paul, who's our head of strength and conditioning is one of the best trainers I've ever worked with. Super talented, um, like incredibly knowledgeable, not just someone who looks good and works out hard. Like there's a very much methodologic approach that he applies to, to training. And so, he was going to be a part of this, this other idea that my colleagues were going to invest in. And then when he heard what we wanted to do and you know, he has a passion for uh, the same things that I do, he joined the team and uh, became our fourth partner. So there's four of us that are technically partners. And then Dr. Marielle, who is, is like, it's such a, the universe works in such incredible ways. Like she went to the same school Paul did, University of Miami. Paul knew her peripherally, knew she was a physical therapist or like finishing physical therapy school, knew she loved, you know, movement. She played division one college volleyball. And he's like, she seems like someone that may be interested. I'll reach out. Next thing you know, like she's in. So she comes out and leads our physical therapy team. And uh, so that's, that's kind of how our initial cohort came to be. And then from that, it's truly just been people we've made connections with from the strength and conditioning side throughout our various journeys. Like someone knew someone who was somewhere and, you know, we tell them about what we're doing and we really haven't found anyone in the health industry that hasn't, you know, thought our idea was like 
wonderful. It doesn't mean everyone's going to work for us because we're a startup and there's you know, challenges that are associated with that. But uh, you would be surprised a lot of healthcare practitioners, doesn't matter where they're at, want to be back part of a team. They don't want to be necessarily in the, you know, the bigger business, the corporate side, the bureaucracy, red tape of medicine. If they could get back to doing like what, what motivated them to become a practitioner in the first place, like working with people that care one-on-one, -on -one, like really getting time with people. Uh, we've had a ton of interest and we haven't really had a shortage of people that have wanted to, to join the team. Um, so that's been amazing and it'll obviously help us as we grow. But if I didn't have Paul, Marielle, you know, my other two partners, Mikey and Tosh, um, like I have no business acumen, Mikey does. I have no design aesthetic, Tosh does. I can't train people, Paul's the best. And I'm not a physical therapist. Marielle's amazing, cares deeply about people. Um, so it's just, I couldn't have picked better people and you know, I guess I'm just grateful again that, uh, you know, things came together as, as they have. So, yeah. You know, when I le learned of the concept, obviously you being maybe the first out there of, of this concept, you know, there's obviously from the, you know, health, you know, side, people are like, Oh, that's, that's cool. That's revolutionary. But like, translating that to the consumer um can you talk about that process and how you know have you sure. done with you know getting people to you know understand and then buy into the concept or has it been easy um i'm gonna answer that in two parts so <clears throat> to your point about like the health practitioner side like what we're doing is it's new because it's everything under one roof but it's definitely not revolutionary in the sense that like all we're doing is making sure people move appropriately and enough eat well take care of their body both from a movement and a medical perspective and have a community around them that supports them which is basically the blue zone blueprint and they've been doing it in those pockets of the world um, for hundreds of years and blue zones are basically areas of the world where people live to nearly a hundred on a regular basis with essentially minimal, if any, chronic disease. And they do it because they move a lot, they eat well, they have a strong community around them and they take care of themselves from a preventive standpoint. So we're not doing anything that's new, right? Like in LA, especially everyone's coming out with a new sexy exercise or device. I'm like, like we don't do anything like anything crazy. It's just like move your body, take care of it, you know, support yourself. So, um, that's been an easy sell. And then adding in the, the things that people aren't necessarily used to in a wellness space, which is the medicine, the lab work, body composition, access to physical therapy. Most people assume physical therapy is only when you're hurt. You know, Marielle will tell you like everyone should be doing physical therapy because there's always something that we can improve upon that will help us remain strong and mobile our entire lives. So that's been something that people have really been drawn to. The difficult part, if any, is, you know, again, like we've created such a significant cost around anything health related in the United States. Um, you know, we had to figure out what is a, a price that will allow us to be successful, allow us to pay people, but also not be so high that people will not participate. Because my goal and our goal has never been to be like, we are the ultra, ultra premium only 
the top of the top can afford us. Like that's not what we want to do. Yes. We want to be able to, you know, be successful as a business and make sure we're paying our employees well, but ultimately we want to be something that everyone can participate in, but also not be such a low cost that you could be a member and then like set it and forget it. Right. Like Hmm. you should, like, if you're going to invest in your health, like you need to invest in your health. And, you know, um, there are some costs associated with that as there well should, because then people are not going to just like have a membership and never go. They're like, shoot, if I'm paying for a monarch membership, I'm going to be there because I'm paying money. That's not, you know, inconsequential. So, um, that has been probably our biggest area of just to me, it's like intrigue, which is like, how much is too much, even for people that can't afford it. Like, instead of, and, and we, we show people as part of like our tours and things like that. This is our price point. This is what's included. If you were to do all this stuff outside of the space, which many people do training gym, sometimes nutrition, preventive medical work, you're paying, you're paying almost three X what you would pay here at Monarch, but psychologically it's in small chunks. So you don't really think about how much you're spending in total. So there's been an interesting psychology with seeing a line item of our, our membership price and people being like, man, I can't believe I'm spending this much money on my health and wellness. But um, as we grow and expand and go into other markets where like the rent, for instance, is not what it is in Los Angeles, our price point is going to come down you know, significantly because it's, it's not necessarily factors of the monarch model that are causing us to you know, uh, make things uh, the price point that they are, it's more like the stuff we can't control. So ultimately our goal is to be kind of affordable luxury and um, something that, you know, people still have to, to invest in, but ultimately it's something that they can sustain for the rest of their life. Yeah. You, I think you opened up in 2019, correct? Yeah. Jan 6, 2020. So basically okay. 2019. Yeah. So best, best timing ever. Yeah, I was about to say maybe two months and then COVID-19 hits. Yeah. Um, you know, how's how's navigating that been? Um, to be honest, when we established Monarch, I wanted to make sure we were considered a medical facility. Like that was our business license, medical facility plus amenities. And that could not have been uh, a better thought because when the pandemic hit, we never thought it would like actually mean anything to have this designation other than maybe for insurance purposes. But pandemic hits and all of a sudden the only thing that can be open are essential facilities, which are physicians office, medical facilities. And I was like, guys, I think we're good. Like, <laughs> yeah. and uh, we tested it and we were good. So like we were able to stay open. Obviously we had to, you know, protective measures, only letting a certain number of people in masks and things like that but we were able to open when everyone else had to shut down. So like from our standpoint, like it was probably an incredible growth accelerator. Um, I have no idea if we would have grown as fast as we did without the pandemic. We'll never know, but it is what it is. And we are here now. So um, perhaps it's a model for wellness institutions moving forward in the sense that like, you know, to protect yourself against something like this, again, like you may need to create an all-inclusive model, which ultimately serves everyone well, because then you have a, little bit more of a robust and complete approach to your health. But, you know, for us, it was truly circumstance and like, we couldn't have predicted what happened and 
definitely couldn't have predicted that it would have allowed us to like actually navigate the pandemic with relative ease. So we're super fortunate because obviously it wasn't that way for a lot of folks. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, I, I think you mentioned like, I think five of you total as partners, four of uh, us, yeah, yeah, four, four, four of yeah. you. And, um, you know, obviously, as you're saying, there are different, maybe business visions from each person in terms of virtual, in terms of expansion into other cities. Mm-hmm. How have you handled that, you know, uh, not maybe not partner conflict, but like difference in and business visions and, and trying to come together as one? Um, I believe working with each other's strengths and acknowledging what those are, you know, Mikey's business, Tasha's design, Paul is like a operations execution. Plus he has, you know, the training mind, which is our most frequent touch point in terms of what people are using on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and then myself with kind of this understanding of the big picture and where things need to go and where the ship, the ship needs to be, to, to be directed. I think we just have acknowledged like those are our strong suits and the other of us, the other, the rest of us uh, don't have strong suits there. So we kind of acquiesce to what those people think. Um, but then again, like we also have the ability to have discourse, right. And agree to disagree on some stuff and, you know, Things have gotten heated at times, but I think that's good because we maintain a level of respect, but we also can have difficult conversations, uh, which is going to be helpful. So um, that I, if we were all similar minded in terms of all medical professionals, this probably wouldn't be successful. If we were all business people, definitely wouldn't be successful. So I, we have a unique blend of uh, capacities and talents that really play well together. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you, you talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, working maybe 80 hours a week. Um, you know, obviously being a business owner, uh, is, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's also tough. Uh, I'm curious, how do you balance, you know, your professional aspirations with maintaining, you know, a personal life? That's a good question. So I'm not perfect by any means. Um, my day starts at 5.30 and I usually get home. I get up at 5.30, I should say. Um, and I usually get home around 9.30 or 10. So in terms of like time for other stuff, I don't have a lot. And uh, I made a commitment to myself that on Sundays, for instance, like I wouldn't go anywhere with some exceptions uh, that I couldn't ride my bike to. Like I live in Santa Monica, it's 65 and sunny nearly every day. Like I have no reason not to be out on my bike. Yeah. And also I, it keeps me away from work. I'm just like Sunday is my day to, to do me. Um, so I, I've learned over time to, to instill some of those things, but I also need to improve. Like I recognize if I want to have a family someday, like, you know, my business cannot necessarily be my priority like it's going to have to be something different to be honest right now like other than making sure i move my body every day i eat well i take time for um like exercise like i said and then also trying to maximize the amount of sleep i can get like 
ideally seven perfect night would be eight hours, just kind of like building that in. Those are the things that I've done as an entrepreneur at this point, just to, to keep going and doing what I'm doing. To be completely honest, though, like when people ask, you know, how do you how do you have a personal life? Like, can you invest a lot in a relationship? Like, I've just had to become really good at saying, like, whoever I'm spending time with, like, these are the things I can commit to. And here is why I will be straightforth, forward and honest with you. And if those terms don't work for you, I totally understand and I respect it. But I don't want to set anyone up for failure or feel like there's some deceptive practice going on. So like I've really had to learn to use discernment and just be open and honest. And instead of setting up expectations that we have from other people, I use the term, you know, like let's expectations versus agreements. Agreements are something that's mutually decided upon. And as long as we uphold them, then we're good. Expectations is kind of like this thing where they may not be necessarily vocalized and then if you're not vocalizing something then you're doomed to fail so i've really had to to get better at setting boundaries and and being um discerning in how i operate outside of the workspace yeah and i think that that um you you know people in that situation can also you know like you can also say you know i hope for this to improve over time Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah. and also understand that, you know, if I have, you know, 10 hours of free time and I'm giving you five hours, that's a large percentage, you know, as compared to so someone who has 20 and is giving you five. You know? Yeah. And I, and I think too, that one, I didn't, didn't coin this term by any means, but uh I think it's okay to be selfish in the sense that like you have to acknowledge you have to take care of you. I said it before, you are your most valuable asset. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're useless to anyone else. And that's in a social setting, work setting or otherwise. Um, so, you know, I've, I've tried to, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing for physicians and anyone in like the professional space as well, which is like, if you're not doing something, you feel lazy, which is could not be further from the truth. Like, by not doing something, you're electively choosing to take care of yourself, to rest, to, you know, whatever, not engage in work. So you're absolutely doing something. It's just not what you work. do during it. Yeah, yeah, it's not work, right? Yeah. And so I that's something where I've had to really become like comfortable with, which is like, it's okay to like take a nap. It's okay to sit on your couch and watch Netflix and not feel like you have to be answering emails. And that's that's something I've had to, to work on. Uh, because I was not good at it. I would love to just sit on my phone, answer emails, contact, like try to yeah. figure out like what's the next opportunity. Um, you have trouble turning I, it off. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, but I've also learned like doing things just to get them done quickly usually ends up in a negative outcome. So instead of just like checking boxes to check them and feel good, like I got a lot of stuff done, I've had to learn to to like sit on things and allow some time to pass because I cannot contribute my full effort and attention to that. Yeah. Well, um, Ryan, I also wanted to talk about health. And, and so, yeah. you know, uh, one of the interesting things about what you're doing at Monarch is this concept of, you know, preventative medicine versus mm -hmm. treating symptoms. And it, it's something that really hasn't been educated to the mass market um 
it, can you speak to what the differences in those are and um you know you know, kind of why people should invest in concepts like yours sure um so our system as it currently stands is very reactive in nature right um we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world in terms of uh, quality of practitioners, facilities, technology, things like that. That being said, what we have not done is placed an emphasis on prevention because it's not necessarily profitable in the short term. Conversely, the cost of healthcare continues to inflate every year, which makes it more expensive for everyone. And also, it creates an environment of people not participating in their health, which ultimately leads to greater expense when eventually it's an inevitability that you need some sort of intervention. What is required at that point would have been significantly less painful, time-consuming, and costly if you just intervened upfront. So we have to change the narrative around like, yes, eating from you know, organic is a little bit more expensive than non-organic. But what is the understanding of why we're doing this? What is this going to save you down the road? It's going to, you know, potentially help with body composition, diabetes, decrease, decrease your cost of potential medications that you're using. You know, like that is kind of a nebulous thought for people right now because we're so used to instant gratification. But I mean, if our healthcare system kind of collapses because things get so costly and then people can't even access it, which is not, you know, that far off realistically, yeah. um, then none of this matters. So like, it's really the time to start to look not only at yourself, but then what are people doing around you in your communities that are trying to encourage people to become proactive and preventative in their healthcare and lifestyle practices, because that has to be the way of the future. Like that's how we navigate out of this crisis. And we, and, you know, I was reading a book uh, recently called the price we pay by Dr. Marty McCary. And he makes this point is like at the top level, the conversation is how do we pay for healthcare? Just assuming that it's going to get more expensive, not what do we do to bring healthcare costs down? Like what interventions can we invest in? And that's where Monarch and what we're doing and anyone in the preventive space is trying to assist with, which is understanding like people are going to get sick and people are going to have issues. It's inevitable. But, you know, eight out of the 10 top causes of morbidity and mortality, arguably in the U.S., are lifestyle associated. They're 100% preventable. So how do we help those people from getting to that point where literally behaviors on the day-to-day -day basis contributed to their mortality, right? Those are the people that we have to do better for. And it's, it's just going to take a concerted effort. And my belief and, you know, what we're doing here with Monarch is, People don't change behavior, unfortunately, because they want to feel better or they want to look better. They change behavior usually for one of two things, because something catastrophic happened to them that forced them to change or their loved one. Someone got cancer, someone, whatever. Or you get some sort of incentivization for it, which is what we're trying to do in terms of building in insurance reimbursement, corporate wellness benefits, whatever. Because think about everything that we do, you, yourself, myself on a daily basis. Why do you have a job? Like, why do you shop where you shop? It's either so you can make money, so you can have resources to do things, or you go places so you don't spend money. And then, you know, you're, you're you don't, you know what I'm saying by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically like, like behavior modification, there has to be something visceral that's like yeah. really hits home. 
And if it's a membership to Planet Fitness at $10 that we can pay for every American, it's probably not significant enough for people to be like, yep, that's, I'm getting a free gym membership. I'm going to change my life. It has to be something more substantial. And that's what we're working on with Monarch is like, what is the platform? What are the data points needed that we can integrate with our brick and mortar work, but also share virtually that can get people not only happier, healthier, more productive, but also have them rewarded financially because you're investing in your health. Here's a little bit of a reward for you. Same thing with car insurance. There's a safe driver discount for car insurance. Why is there not that for health? Like you drive safely, less of a cost. You live healthier, less of a cost. Like for whatever reason, and I, there's many reasons theoretically, but the way things have gone in healthcare over the last 50 to 100 years, it's basically sick care. It's benefiting and profiteering from pharmaceutical interventions, you know, things like that. So uh, I think we've just kind of lost our way. I think anything is possible. I absolutely believe we can work our way back from it, but we just have to get all the parties and the players that are participating to understand you all, you can play well in the sandbox. Having healthy people doesn't mean insurance companies are obsolete. doesn't mean, you know, corporate wellness costs go through the roof. In fact, as long as like they're understanding how each part fits in the ecosystem, we can absolutely build a model that's sustainable and keeps people healthier, which frees up money we're spending on healthcare to introduce into education, social welfare, mental health, like whatever you want to use it. Cause right now we're spending $4 trillion paying for illness. What if we could pull a trillion dollars back and then introduce it into whatever we want to make our society better. So that's kind of the work that, you know, I'm doing and we're doing and, you know, the more the merrier, like, let's do this together. Cause uh, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think it's a, it's a really, it's sad that this isn't the mainstream uh, healthcare thought, um, you know, for people. And hopefully as time goes on, um, people start realizing, you know, putting in the time for their healthcare mm-hmm. now is not only benefiting their own health, but is, is just the right decision. Right. Um, instead of having to, you know, get surgeries later on in life or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, Ryan, you mentioned eight of the 10 um, are lifestyle decisions, um, you know, from your education, from your life, is there something in terms of a change that you made, whether it's in food, uh, sleep or exercise, um, that's really helped you, uh, you know, have better health? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's, it's twofold. So when I was in medical school, I shifted more towards like a plant-based diet. So didn't completely eliminate meat. I actually did for a while, but, um, uh, that was a big one because I think it forced me to start like actually eating vegetables a little bit more and like learn how to prepare things that didn't have just like meat and potatoes, which is kind of the Midwest diet, so to speak. Um, so that was huge for me. And I read a book called the China study that kind of shifted me in that direction, which is all about plant-based diets and cancer prevention. It's a really good book. Um, so that was the first part. The second part was, um, I, to be honest, I actually stopped drinking about three years ago and it was, it wasn't due because of like a problem where I was losing control, but I, I just had some things happen where I was 
being retrospective and, and also introspective and saying like, is this actually doing anything? Like, is it serving me? Is it improving my quality of life? And ultimately I just said, I, I don't think it is. And so I'm going to cut it out for a little bit and see how I feel. And that was three years ago. So those are like the biggest things is, you know, my diet shifted from traditional American to more whole food plant-based. And then I just cut out alcohol. It's, uh, you know, in small doses, I'm not against it. Like when patients say, Hey, I have a, I have a Reposado neat every night. So as long as it's an appropriate volume and it's not like a bottle of Reposado neat, like not unreasonable. Yeah. Right. Um, sometimes people will be like, I have one drink and I, I'm like, how much is that? They're like, it's usually like a liter. I'm like, how is that, <laughs> how is that a drink? Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, for me, it just, it didn't, it really didn't fit with where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So, um, I pulled it back and it hasn't impacted me socially because you can get, I love sparkling water and you can get that anywhere. And, you know, so it's, uh, I think people are starting to also like respect people's decisions more. And truly once you get in your, like your thirties and forties, most people are like, damn, like, I don't want to drink. I feel like garbage the next day. Yep. So I'm kind of just getting a leg up on them and just yeah. figuring out how to live life without it. But I'm not opposed by any means. Yeah. And saving money. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, one of the interesting things that I saw is you, is you came out with your personal line of supplements. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about, um, you know, supplements in general, is <clears throat> there something you would recommend based off of, you know, um, just that you can't, that humans can't get from a normal food plant-based diet or that, mm. I guess the reason you came out with them and yeah. what, what, what areas they can help in. So uh, we wanted to do a small batch just to see like how people would respond and, and work with a supplier that was high in quality and, and uh, repu uh, reputability. Here's my feeling on supplements. People should eat real food and we should let our body use and not use what it needs and does not need. That being said, the quality of our food is getting worse. Vegetables and the, you know, the minerals and nutrients that are in our soil getting worse. So supplementation intermittently is beneficial. Oral supplementation is tough because we don't have any idea how capsules, tablets are going to get digested, processed, absorbed, especially in the nutraceutical space, because you don't have to, there's no regulation that says, you know, you need to demonstrate this effect size and this many people. All it is, is it, as long as it's safe for consumption, you're good to go. So Truthfully, most of the supplements that I recommend, I really only recommend three. Uh, healthy protein. I personally am more plant-based. I think whey sometimes gives people a little bit of uh, irritable bowel sometimes. Uh, creatine. Creatine is looking like it's very beneficial for anyone at any age in terms of maintaining muscle mass and potentially helping cognitive function. Some of the most recent data is, is kind of indicating. And the other part is... Um, uh, magnesium. So one of the supplements that we have is we just call it our stress supplement, but the, the active ingredients, magnesium, but all those things are powders and powders absorb in liquids, liquids absorb better than capsules, tablets, and solids. So those things, like I have reasonable belief that they're going to get into your system, probably in a higher uh, concentration than capsules or tablets. And one like magnesium is great in terms of balancing out calcium. It's great for anxiety. It's great for sleep. It's great for blood pressure. Like, uh, and we just don't get enough of it in our diet anymore based on, you know, poor soil quality amongst other things. So, um, 
those are kind of like the three that I recommend. We have all three. We have a protein powder. We have uh, creatine. We have a you know like the stress magnesium supplement. Outside of that, like if someone really wanted vitamin supplementation or something of that line, uh, we do a lot of IV work. So like fluids going into a vein or intramuscular injections and things like that, because we know at least it's going to get into your system because we know we put it in there manually. And also it'll get through your vasculature, <clears throat> avoiding what's called the first pass effect, which is essentially your liver just filtering everything out the seconds it's absorbed. So you have a higher likelihood that you're going to get the intended benefit from whatever vitamins you're taking if you inject it into muscle or put it in a vein. That being said, you don't want to do that necessarily every day, but if there's really something you need, um, you know, the reason they do give you shots in the hospital is because they know if you need pain medicine, like they're going to put it in a vein or they're going to inject it in your arm because they know it's going to get in your system. Same thing with vitamins, right? Like um, we shouldn't treat those separately. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't want to be shooting yourself up with all of your nutrients. Like you should just eat real food because there's fiber, there's you know all the different nutrient components, things that help maintain a healthy gut. Um, so that's pretty much where I stand on supplements. And you know we tried a couple; they've worked pretty well. But it's it's not going to be something that I demand everyone does because I I would rather people perform basic lifestyle functions consistently. Um, to achieve optimal health. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan, are there any other like resources, whether movies or books uh, that you would recommend? Obviously there's so much information out there in the medical, you know, space and, you know, as, as, you know, non-doctors, you know, we have to rely on, on doctors for that. Um, you know, with, especially, anything with the plant-based because, um, you know, many people are opposed to it. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to look through my list here, of things that I've read recently. So give me a moment. Yeah. Um, uh, Oh, there's a book by breath called James Nestor. Let me try that one again. There's a book called breath by James Nestor. Uh, it's all about breathing. Why we breathe how we've changed our breathing patterns, how it's led to some negative health outcomes. Super simple, easy to understand, tons of actionable information that can be introduced by anyone. That's a good one. Uh, there's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which basically explains the importance of sleep. And anyone who's like, yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead or like I can get by on five hours, like yeah. why that's not an actual thing. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good one. Um, let me try to think the China study is really good. If you're interested in terms of like diet, what should I eat? What should I not eat? Um, and that's by T Colin Campbell. So the China study by T Colin Campbell, and then uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's a good start. Like yeah, Netflix yeah, no, in terms good. of Netflix, in terms of documentaries, there's a ton of stuff that, um, you know, it's controversial. What the health, like supersize me, all that stuff. I think that's more, I think that divides us more than unites us. Um, there's a really good documentary called kiss the ground. That's all about like sustainable farming and its impact on the environment that I think everyone can probably get behind. So if you wanted to watch that, it's called kiss the ground. It's narrated by Woody Harrelson. Which everyone, uh, 
I think knows Woody Harrelson for the most part. So it's pretty good. And um, uh, ultimately it kind of spans not only health, but also environmental and sustainability, like at the global level. So that's a pretty good one. So if you do that, that'll probably take care of your next month and a half or two months in terms of reading <laughs> yeah. activity. And that yeah. you know, will be good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, uh, your location being in West Hollywood, um, how has that transition been for you, uh, you know, navigating? I'm, I'm sure you have some celebrities that come to Monarch or things yeah. like that. How How has navigating L.A. culture uh, been for uh, you? It took a while to get accustomed to. Um, and I've just appreciated that it, L.A. is a great place to develop an idea, to find resources, opportunity, people that can help you achieve a goal because that's a lot of the reason why people are out here is to, to design something, build something, launch something. Uh, so that's been amazing. You also have to navigate the fact that a lot of people may not be super genuine in terms of their uh, desire or their agenda in terms of interacting with you and uh again it takes a couple times of getting burned before you figure it out but i think as long as you are you know no matter who you are out here as long as you are stay true to to your values your virtues and what brought you out here um you should do okay um to like we have celebrities that come through monarch and in all honesty i'm like i don't care who you are we don't care who you are like health is health and there's a way to achieve it. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred million Instagram followers or whatever you, you value or classify as celebrity these days, like there's a way to get healthy and there's a way to make yourself better and the people around you better. And we're going to offer that for you. So uh, we don't really, we don't treat anyone differently. Like, you know, we have some people that are super well-known and they're treated the same as, you know, people that are just successful in other fields of business that have no public notoriety. So it doesn't really, that, that oddly enough, hasn't really, hasn't really shifted. I met Chris Hemsworth once. That was pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. He played. Yeah. 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 So. Ryan, we talked about a good amount. Uh, if, if there's somebody out there that wants to, to support you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, check us out on Instagram at Monarch Weho, W-E-H-O. Uh, that's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-W-E-H-O. My Instagram is Dr. Underscore Green Underscore D-O. Uh, and then our website's monarchweho.com. So check out what we're doing. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me via Instagram. I'm pretty good on getting back to people there. And, you know, I'm happy to answer questions about anything. So Cool. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on, Ryan. I just really appreciate you sharing your journey to becoming an osteopathic physician and everything that you're doing in terms of preventative medicine uh, with Monarch is awesome. So thank you. Appreciate it.